from Kirkco Media. Coming up on the show. The U.S. has one of the least generous social protection programs for low-income people in the world among rich countries. In particular, this results in one of the highest rate of child poverty in the world, again, among rich countries. And that's an important problem because that does something to the future. What's our future going to be like when so many of our children uh, live in poverty? I realize that UBI is not targeted at children only, but among other things, it would disproportionately benefit poor children, especially if it was a per capita you know, amount that is also, is also given to children. Well, this is a place where we listen to all kinds of ideas and strategies from all sides. We do so with respect and open-mindedness. Today, we will test your ability to think out of the box. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. First, let me introduce our panel. Jane Albrecht, of course, is an international trade attorney who fought for U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials all over the world. She's a dedicated political activist, and she's participated on numerous presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane. Great to see you and everyone, and welcome, Joanna. Ed Larson, our Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, a prolific lecturer, and a beloved professor at Pepperdine University. Ed, so nice to see you zoomed in as well. Thank you. And our special guest, as you've heard, Professor Joanna Marinescu. She's an assistant professor with the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. She's also a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, where she studies the labor market to craft policies that are designed to enhance employment, productivity, and even economic security. Her research expertise includes wage discrimination, antitrust law for the labor market, universal basic income, unemployment insurance, the minimum wage, and even employment contracts. She has also testified for Congress and the Federal Trade Commission. Joanna's research has been published in all the leading academic and economic journals. She's often quoted in the New York Times and CNN and Wall Street Journal. And now, of course, she's on politics. Meet me in the middle. Welcome, Joanna. It's so nice of you to zoom in today. I'm really happy to be here, Bill. Joanna, if I can put you right on the spot, I wonder if I could ask you to argue both sides here for a second. Why is it taking so long to engage a $15 minimum wage. Right. So one of the reasons is there's a lot of authorities for states as well as cities to pass their own minimum wage. So even if the federal minimum wage doesn't increase, there's been a lot of increases at the local level. And some of those increases did reflect increases in the cost of living. As you just mentioned, in some places, $15 an hour isn't all that much compared to the cost of living. So that, in a way, allows for more flexibility. And from some point of view, you could say that that's actually desirable. Now, what are the key pros and cons uh, of the minimum wage increase? The key concern, if you're going to increase the minimum wage, is that it's going to cut down employment. And, you know, you have to just think about the simple economics. You know, if you're told that the price of your coffee is going up, you want to buy less of it. So if you're being told that the price of your worker per hour is going to go up, you want to hire fewer workers. Is that really true, Ioana? For I mean, when you look at some of the companies we're talking about here that lead this discussion, companies like Walmart, are they really going to hire one less person if they have to pay a couple of dollars more an hour? That's the question. 
But certainly, uh, basic economic theory says that this should happen. And even once you account for the fact that, as I can talk more in a moment, sometimes people are underpaid, so there's room to grow, there is a limit to this. Because at some point, you are paying people so much that it's simply not worth employing them. You're paying them more than what they're able to deliver you know, with their work. So there's just no way in any theory that you could imagine that there isn't a limit to how high you can go. There is a limit. So the key question then is, where are we? And I think the the progressive viewpoint is that we are well below the limit and there's room to grow. And in fact, my own research shows that in some cases, employers do in fact pay workers less than their contribution to production. And therefore, there is some room to increase the minimum wage without killing jobs. Again, that doesn't mean that we can increase it to whatever level, because we're going to run into the problems that I just explained, but that a moderate increase in the minimum wage isn't going to necessarily kill jobs because these companies can afford it if at baseline they were underpaying people, basically. So that's that's the key argument. I love that analysis you just provided of the minimum wage and the the wages compared to the workers' contribution. I think that is exactly the analysis one has to go through. But in the United States, very often, workers don't get paid a living wage. And by that, I mean, if a worker works full-time, they don't earn enough to put a roof over their head and food on their table. So how can it be possible that with such low-paying jobs, the worker isn't contributing at least as much as they're getting paid? Right. So I think that those two are really quite independent. One thing is the cost of living and one thing is how much you're contributing for as the value to your employer. And those don't have to align at all. You know, and it could be that you live in a city like San Francisco where the cost of everything is super high, but you personally, you know, maybe you're a high school dropout and you just don't have a lot of skills, unfortunately. So there's not a lot of jobs where you can produce a lot of value for an employer. And therefore, you can end up in a situation where your fair wage that actually compensates you your fair wage, again, that is enough to represent the value that you're bringing to your employer, your fair wage in that sense might be less than a living wage, simply because you happen to live in a place that is so expensive and your skills, again, don't allow you to produce enough to justify a wage that would be a living wage for the place that you live in. So I don't think that the minimum wage should be seen in this perspective about the living wage. I mean, it's, all, it's, an, look, it's an argument for why you might want to push for a higher minimum wage. However, a big force is how much they're contributing to their employer. And the cost of living is a little bit separate from that. It's important from a social justice perspective, but that's not necessarily the immediate thing to look for. You've raised a couple important points there. One, of course, is the cost of living is very different in Mississippi, for example, than it is in San Francisco or New York City. And that's always been the argument against too high a federal minimum wage. Also, you have to, when you think about what is a living wage, are we talking about a living wage for a family of four or a family of eight or for a single individual? Because that's also very different. And also for the expense that it costs the business, there's a great difference between a small business that is struggling along and a big business like Walmart. How do economists define a living wage? 
So actually, believe it or not, we don't define it. <laughs> it's not a, a living wage is not a standard concept in economics. Instead, basic economic theory assumes that if the market works perfectly and therefore there aren't problems, like I was telling you, that there's not enough employers, not enough competition. So if everything goes well and you have many, many employers competing for workers, then the worker will be paid exactly the value of their contribution to the company. And that's that. And there's no you know, notion of living wage in there. It's about how much the worker is bringing in value to the employer. Yeah, we all know that doesn't work in practice. We know as a practical matter, these wonderful rules of supply and demand just don't work in practice because you have all sorts of glitches. People are tied to a business. People are tied because they're getting health care from someone and they don't have the freedom to leave and they may have pre-existing conditions. There are not that many other employments. People are, uh, are living a place because they have to take care of their parents. There's a whole bunch of reasons why this wonderful invisible hand simply doesn't work. Well, I think the question is how far are we, right? It's like, of course, this model, this way of looking at it is highly stylized. And in fact, I'll be the first to tell you that it doesn't work. And my, a lot of my latest papers are saying, hey, people, listen up. Evidence shows that that's not true. People don't always get paid you know, their, their true value for the employer. In fact, they often get underpaid. However, this way of thinking about it is important in terms of thinking that that is one of the driving factors behind wages. That, you know, if you're bringing more value to your employer, that is a factor that might make you earn more. But as you just said, there's other factors such as, you know, how much competition there is for your work, whether you're tied to this particular locale due to family reasons and so on and so forth. But the point is just that your productivity, how much you're bringing for your employer is still an important element of how much you're getting paid. But depending on circumstances, your pay might be you know, more or less close to that. This is a good transition to our main subject for this podcast. Professor Marinescu, you, along with other economists and perhaps most famously Andrew Yang during his presidential bid, have been discussing something called a universal basic income, or I think Andrew Yang called it the freedom dividend. Can you describe the need first that yields such thinking and then how this program works? So just to define it, a universal basic income is the idea of giving everybody within the U.S. or potentially a certain region the exact same amount of money and without any condition. So that's in its purest form. Then we have other versions that go a bit away from that, but in its purest form, this is what it is. So cash, same for everybody, no conditions. And that's what Andrew Yang essentially was proposing with his freedom dividend. And in Andrew Yang's version, a big push for that is that he thinks that robots are going to eventually take away our jobs. And I think that that's a real danger, but it certainly hasn't happened yet. Another argument for the policy is that in the U.S., we have a lot of gaps in our social protection. And so, you know, it's very easy to fall through the cracks. There's just a few programs and you might be low income, not, not eligible. That means that, you know, you might be in dire straits and not getting something. Plus, all these programs create a lot of disincentives to make more money because essentially a lot of these programs say you're only getting it if you're poor. So therefore, once you get out of poverty, making a little bit more, the program's been taken away from you. So the big advantage of something like sum of cash that you get no matter what is that, number one, it covers everybody, no gaps in coverage. And number two, since you always get it no matter what, 
there is no disincentive to make more because you get to keep your benefit even as you know potentially you're making more and more money so those are you know classical justifications that have been made for a while and nothing to do with technological change hold that thought we'll be back in 30 seconds a moment of your time a new podcast from Kurt Co Media currently 21 years old and today I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dreams. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkcocom slash a moment of your time. Can you outline the need a little bit? Because, I mean, clearly to all of us, it probably sounds great. Just bring up the bottom. But can you describe the need and what brings you to thinking about a strategy like this? The U.S. has one of the least generous social protection programs for low-income people in the world among rich countries. And in particular, this results in one of the highest rate of child poverty in the world, again, among rich countries. And that's an important problem because that does something to the future. What's our future going to be like when so many of our children uh, live in poverty? I realize that UBI is not targeted at children only, but among other things, it would disproportionately benefit poor children, especially if it was a per capita you know, amount that is also, is also given to children. So again, the idea is that the social protection system we have right now is not very generous and it's holy, meaning like there's holes in it. So you can easily fall through the cracks. So the problem that UBI would solve is having something where you couldn't fall through the cracks. And then, of course, we can debate how much, right? And, and that's a legitimate question, like how much exactly do you want to get? Now, you, you should know that the research shows that the more you give people and the more there might be a slight disincentive to work, but it's not clear, it depends. However, it's very clear that there isn't an amount where people just, everybody stops working. That's not how it works. People are really motivated to work. Even when people win the lottery, the overwhelming majority continue working. So I just want to immediately nip in the bud the idea that a very generous UBI would just persuade everybody to stop working. That's just not the case based on the evidence we have from lottery winners in particular. Basically, th this is a program where I think you've mentioned a figure around $12,000 a year or $1,000 a month as kind of a, a float-all boat sort of approach. Everybody gets a little bit more money. Okay, so we're talking about a, a gross amount of about $3 trillion a year to hand out. But I think you're also talking about then eliminating such things as welfare, unemployment, such programs like that. So first of all, different proponents have different amounts of the UBI. So Andrew Yang's freedom dividend is a thousand a month, and that's one proposal, but you could start smaller. And in fact, it's probably more politically, more realistic, as well as in terms of the logistics of getting it started, getting something much smaller would probably be much more feasible as far as, you know, policy path. 
And then you're asking, of course, the more you pay and the bigger the need for financing, meaning that you have to find the money somewhere from the government perspective. And then that there's two sources. You can add additional revenue. And one way to do that is, for example, through carbon taxes and more generally pollution taxes. And then secondly, you can cut existing programs. And then the question is, which ones do you want to cut? And that gets, again, into a complicated debate, but more likely you'd want to cut programs that are, especially if you're going to have $1,000 a month, programs that are closer to being cash already. So potentially you could consider cutting food stamps, maybe, but this is something you can debate. However, what you don't want to cut is something like unemployment insurance. And the reason is unemployment insurance depends on your prior wage. So if you're more of a middle-class individual, unemployment insurance protects you by giving you a higher amount so you can still pay your mortgage and continue to live. And the UBI just wouldn't be enough for you. You know, if you're a middle-class individual, it wouldn't provide that sort of insurance. So we're not going to cut unemployment insurance because we have a basic income. It's nice to have basic income. It doesn't replace the role that unemployment insurance has in the system. You know, in most places in this country, $1,000 a month is going to be a real questionable lifestyle. So let's just use that as a figure, however. Because, you know, developing a program like this and saying that you're going to pay less to start is, is kind of like saying you're going to glue these two pieces together, but let's not get those two pieces so close right now. Let's keep them apart. And then you have something that's completely unworkable because you're afraid that the taxpayer won't be willing to foot the bill. Uh, of course, in order to develop a program like this, it's got to be at, at a certain critical mass, certainly, right? So let's just use the $1,000 a month right now as a basic point. So let's talk about a couple of things. One, of course, where the extra, let's just call it $2 trillion instead of 3 might come from. Because, of course, you know, it turns out that half the people in this country are voting their tax bracket first. How does something like this get through a divided society like we are, where people are so concerned with their tax rate? So it's certainly not easy at all to, to finance if you need to raise taxes. So that would put pressure on cutting some of the programs, which means that, you know, if you cut something, that means you have to raise fewer taxes. Even so, at $1,000 a month, you're going to have to find some revenue somewhere. The interesting thing is that the way you raise taxes could be done in a number of different ways. And in a more or less progressive way, meaning like, obviously, how much the rich people pay relative to middle class and so on. So if you did it in a way where it falls disproportionately on higher income individuals, this would make the whole system more progressive. And that's important also because some progressives are like, why do we want to give $1,000 a month to Bill Gates? He doesn't need it. But what they fail to see is that most of these schemes would be financed through a tax that would fall more heavily, like most taxes do. I mean, that's the normal thing on higher income individuals. So on net, Bill Gates is paying into the system, even though he's getting $1,000, he's paying more than what he's getting. So then the question is, you know, how progressive do you want to make your tax system that is covering for this? And I want to say that even if you had a flat tax, meaning the same percent tax on everybody, Still on net, higher income individuals would contribute a lot more because, you know, 20% of a million dollars is a lot more than 20% of $10,000. And so even with the same tax rate on everybody, it would still be a progressive system where lower income individuals are net for this, whereas higher income individuals are paying additional taxes. I think I agree with you that our social safety net could be more generous, but I'm not convinced you don't 
need and want means testing at some point just for purposes of efficiency. And I also can see that rather than giving out food stamps is one form of welfare and something else is one for you just give one cash payment and that may, might make some sense too. But I think there's so many things that we could do as a country that are important for our country to progress economically as well as socially. Things like more serious protection for workers, vastly increased investment in education. If we don't do that, we are already falling behind. We will fall behind trading partners worse if we don't do this. And when you invest in education, which means better quality schools, K through 12 for everyone, smaller classes, more development of your people in your workforce, you tend to have less of these kind of problems. So there's other things as well. But before we get to universal income, which I think is a nice idea, I'm not sure if we do that and don't do some of these other things, we've invested our time and money well. Right. So this is definitely not a panacea. You know, it doesn't solve all problems, but I will say that actually it increases education, uh, educational achievement. So one of the things that the research shows with respect to unconditional cash transfers is that, for example, Native Americans get money from casinos in some areas in this country, and it's this kind of unconditional cash. As long as you're a member of the tribe, you get a regular payment. And there were clear increases in the number of years of education that their children achieved after this program was put in place. And the, the evidence goes in the same direction for negative income tax experiments that are also a form of basic income that were done in the 70s. So this in itself increases the level of education among the most disadvantaged children. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that we should always think of basic income as a combination of the basic income and the tax. And the targeting that you're talking about occurs when you see them together. Because, of course, the basic income by itself is the same for everyone. As such, it's completely untargeted. But once you add on top of it the tax system that you're using to finance it, it comes down to giving different amount to different people because you have to consider the net of the amount of basic income that you get plus the tax that you are asked to contribute through the system for that. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have certain programs, even if we had a UBI, that offer additional money for special hardships. For example, for disabled people, you might still want to get them some extra because that's a particular circumstance where even a $1,000 a month, might, we might think it's not enough if you're disabled. So that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have potentially other targeted programs for special cases like that. But again, even though the basic income is the same for everybody, once you add in the taxes that we're using to finance it, it's actually not, and it is typically in most realistic scenarios, targeted at lower income people. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Welcome back. And also, of course, we've got to realize that close to 100% of this money would immediately go back into the economy. That's right. Thanks for bringing that up. So that's also easy to neglect. So my work, we were looking at the Alaska Permanent Fund. So in Alaska, every year, people receive about 1000 to $2,000 
every person, including babies. Uh, so you just have to have lived in Alaska for a year. So anybody one year old or more in Alaska received this once a year. And we looked at what happened there and we were concerned that perhaps people would stop working or work less. And we didn't find much of that. And then when asking why didn't that happen, our key explanation is that maybe there was an incentive for some to work less, but at the same time, people spent the money in the local economy, on retail, restaurants, and so on. And that presumably created jobs. So then on net, you know, there was no effect on employment. So that's another aspect that's you know, worth considering that in general, we know that lower income people have a high propensity to spend you know, their cash. So therefore, giving these people money especially would benefit businesses because these people would spend their money and that would create more jobs, in fact, stimulating the economy. Isn't there a ratio, maybe you could help us with this, if, if someone spends a dollar on an apple, how many times does that apple go through the economy in a year? So that's, that's exactly the issue of what we call the fiscal multiplier. And it's more like the question is usually asked about the federal government, you know, in a crisis, spending some money, how much additional activity can it create? And, you know, it can be quite impressive, the amount of extra activity that you can create, you could create up to double, you know, the amount that you spend if it's during a crisis. And that's different if it's not a crisis. And the reason is, if you're in a depression, we have what we call slack, meaning that workers aren't working, factories aren't working. It's like the resources we have, both in terms of workers and capital, are underused. So especially during a crisis, if you're able to inject additional cash in the economy and people spend, that mobilizes all these resources that aren't being used, both in terms of capital and workers, and it can have you know huge positive effects. So that's why right now, I'd say that having something like a temporary basic income might be actually a really good idea, given the situation that we find ourselves right now with this you know, coronavirus crisis. You've made some good arguments, but I haven't heard anything that dissuades me from the fact that there's not a problem in means testing this. You may not want to say, okay, you get $1,000 a month until you get a job and then you get nothing. But you could do gradually. I mean, there's a point at which someone's earning sixty or $70,000 a year, and they'll take that $70,000 a year job rather than not taking it and keeping 12000 Right. They aren't, but that's in part why we changed the structure of welfare so that, you know, in many countries, it doesn't get taken away from you completely, but, you know, there's a phase out. So in order to lessen the problems that I was talking about, that, you know, if everything gets taken away from you all of a sudden, that creates a strong disincentive. So, you know, we've improved on that. But I think, you know, again, the key thing is that just to keep it really simple, basic income plus flat tax, meaning that you pay the same amount as far as to finance the basic income. Let's say everybody pays the same tax rate. So the more you earn and the more taxes you pay, but at the same rate. So there is no you know, sudden change. You keep your basic income and for every additional dollar that you make, you might be paying, I don't know, 10 cents towards the basic income scheme. And that continues like that no matter how much you make. So there is no you know, sudden change in your incentives. Yeah, the more you make, there's a fixed rate that you're paying towards the basic income program. I'm just making up a number. I haven't calculated how much that would cover, but let's say 10 cents to the dollar, and that's that. This is actually not a completely new concept. Even Richard Nixon 50 years ago was talking about something that I think he called a negative income tax, right? Right, and that's basically a basic income 
financed by a specific tax rate, which is not exactly a flat tax. You know, it varies a little bit, but a lot of the debate today is like, get the income and nobody's telling you how you're going to pay for it. The negative income tax is basic income plus being explicit of a specific way how you're going to pay for it with a specific, you know, tax profile that's going to get you a budget neutral situation. I'd like to bring in a friend of ours who was on our show a couple of months ago and kind of put you in a tough spot. Darren Esamoglu was on our show a while back, and I think you probably know what his opinions are here, but I'm going to read it just so I can be accurate. He basically expressed doubts on the program, and he said, certainly the current U.S. status quo is horrible. A more efficient and generous social safety net is needed. But UBI, universal basic income, is expensive while not being generous enough. So there we're back in the place where he says it's not going to be enough to change our world, and at the same time, it's too expensive. So what do you feel about his take on this? I agree with the first part that, you know, the system could be more more generous, but I think it kind of gets back to the perspective that UBI, it's looking at the fact that it's the same for everybody. And I, I have read, by the way, a piece that he wrote on this, where basically his beef with UBI was that it's not targeted. And my answer to that, which we've already talked about at length, is that it's targeted ex post after you account for the tax. I'm also wanting to say that special categories of people like disabled might be getting extra on account of special you know, difficulties. So I personally don't feel like basic income, again, on net, once you count both the amount and the tax that's used to be paid for it, is untargeted. I think, again, his main concern is that it's not targeted enough. My answer is you've got to look at the income and the tax, not just the income taken in isolation. I think the answer is means testing in part, because with means testing, whether it be Social Security or UBI, you can give more than $1,000 a month to those who need it, and you're not wasting it on those that don't. That's what that negative income tax essentially is, Jane. Exactly. The whole, the whole idea is if, if you take a look at your tax, you make a certain amount of money and you're paying into the system, or you don't make a certain amount of money and basically the system is paying you. And believe it or not, it was celebrated by one of the most conservative presidents we've ever had. Now, of course, he turned into a crook, but that's a separate conversation altogether. But clearly, this kind of thing has been under consideration for a good long time. And it doesn't seem like we're a whole lot closer to figuring it out. I think we are maybe just a teensy tiny bit closer due to the pandemic right now, because I, I think that that slightly shift, not in like a super radical way, but it does slightly shift perspectives. I think that it's a huge shock. A lot of people have lost income and it's much more apparent to people that we need to be able to make sure that everybody has an income to, to live on. And of course, UBI isn't the only answer to that, but it does, I, I would say like sort of slightly push the winds towards the idea rather than away from it. As we end this show, I would like to understand what you would recommend to our current government that is clearly spending a lot more time on politics than they are on governing. There are millions of unemployed people who right now can't pay their rent, can't even buy food, their kids don't have sneakers. And here we're arguing about political things that are absolutely ludicrous. So without going there, can you recommend to our governors what they should push for with this stimulus bill and how they should structure it to get us all the way to the point where, I don't know, nine months, maybe 12 months from now, things might begin to normalize? 
So I think there should be a new stimulus bill and it's very important to provide enough support for people who many of them are about to lose their benefits. And that's because not only, of course, it will fight poverty because a lot of those people are going to fall into poverty, but it would be good for business because this would allow these people to continue spending their money and therefore for businesses in particular, grocery stores, retail and so on to keep having customers. So not only is good for people, but it's good for the economy. It creates stimulus. That's why it's called the stimulus bill. And so that should be the main focus is to get income in the pockets of people. And there's different ways of doing it. And we could send new rounds of cash, like similar to a temporary basic income, as well as maintain unemployment benefits uh, for a while. So all this, you know, there's different combinations, but the key is we need to give people income so that they can survive this crisis. As you said, I think we're probably there for at least half a year to a whole year. And so it's very important to realize that there is a lot of path dependency in the economy, meaning that once we got ourselves into a hole, it takes a lot of time to climb back out of that hole. And so therefore, being able to maintain the economy, maintain enough economic activity in a crisis like this is important because that tells us something about you know, how quickly we can recover on the other end. And the more we let things fall down and down and down, and it's going to be really hard to climb that back that, that hill. And that's kind of what happened in the last crisis of the Great Recession was already really, really bad. And it took a long, long, long while for the unemployment rate to recover. So the less low we go and the better it is and the stimulus is going to help us you know, achieve that. Well, I agree with you. I hate to throw cold water from history on your analysis, but if you look to the Great Depression, because of the long lag time between an election and when the new president took office, Herbert Hoover, after he was rejected by the people, just sat on his hands and it got worse and worse and worse. And there is every likelihood that that'll be the case again now, because without the executive branch offering leadership and pushing for a stimulus package, because the Republicans are in control of the Senate and the Democrats are in control of the House, if there's no executive leadership to push the Senate, the history tells us that nothing will get passed until a new president comes into office and then we'll be much deeper in that hole, just as you're talking about. But this is exactly what happened in 1932. And I fear, given the fact that the Treasury Secretary Munchen is doing nothing and the president is too busy bringing lawsuits and being guided by that great lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> it's just all stopped and stagnant and you're not going to get the parties together. President Trump still carries a lot of credibility with certain people. And I think that without him backing it, you're never going to get Republicans in the Senate to have the courage to pass anything of significance. I'm afraid you might be right, Ed. I was just talking about what should be done. Whether we can get it done is a separate question. You know, I, I cross my fingers, but I'm afraid you might be right. You want to, is there anything that is a reasonable solution for the Biden administration other than a universal basic income? Is there a reasonable solution for this? I mean, I think at this point, they have to consider also what's feasible, right? So I think what's feasible is a version similar to the CARES Act with some modifications in some corner or other that they have to think strategically about 
you know, bang for the buck, is this a good thing? And will the Republicans not resist that? So it's just, it's also about realism and, you know, what's a good, again, I think the key thing is getting money in people's pockets. And I don't think that Republicans are necessarily opposed to that, but there's all sorts of political incentives. It's about how do you find a compromise solution that doesn't make Biden look bad and that the Republicans, you know, might be willing to go along with. And it's not easy because before both parties, arguably in the first CARES Act, had some incentive to do something because the elections were coming and then they didn't want to look bad and not having done something in a major crisis. And I fear that perhaps political incentives would be a bit difficult and that the Republicans might resist extra, even though in principle they're not that opposed. But now they want to stick it to Biden, potentially, and so this might you know, make things more difficult. My hope is that Biden is somebody who's known for his sense of compromise and for his many friendships in the Senate, including with Mitch McConnell. So I'm hoping that that will give him you know, a slight edge in trying to negotiate a compromise. But I believe it's probably going to be pretty complicated. Professor Marinescu, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a dynamic and interesting, complicated conversation. How can people follow you? So you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter account is M-I-O-A-N-A, like Marinescu, my last name, and Joanna. So M-I-O-A-N-A, follow me on Twitter. Okay. To our listeners, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't have to hunt around for Meet Me in the Middle next week. Thank you to our producer, A.J. Mosley. Mastering is by Steve Rickyberg. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thank you so much, of course, once again to Ed Larson and Jane Albrecht. And if you don't mind, we all know that we've got work to do to make America a better place for all of our citizens. Most of us are willing to make reasonable sacrifices. Perhaps we can all realize that we need to give these issues some mental sweat. And who knows, if we meet in the middle, we may be able to craft a better way to run our society. We'll see you next week, everybody. AJ, wait, wait, hold, hold the music for just a second. As this pandemic seems to be picking up steam, let's do our part. Wear a mask, okay? From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.